Reacting to the world's best science, the Naked Scientist Newsflash. This is The Naked Scientists with me, Ben Valsler, and with Dave Ansell. And first up, let's take a look at some of this week's top science news stories. An isolated population of people in Ecuador could hold the genetic key to a long and healthy life, according to research published in the journal Science Translational Medicine this week. It's known that mutations in growth signalling pathways can extend lifespan and reduce genetic damage in model organisms like yeast and nematode worms, and even reduce insulin resistance and cancer rates in mice. To find out what effect mutations in similar genes may have on humans, Jime Guevara Aguirre at the Institute of Endocrinology, Metabolism and Reproduction in Quito, Ecuador, Volta Longo at the University of Southern California and their colleagues have studied a group of 99 related people who all displayed a mutation in the growth hormone receptor or GHR gene, most of them having the E180 mutation, where the resultant protein lacks eight amino acids and as such cannot fold into the correct shape. As a result of having this mutation, their growth is limited. Now, the subjects themselves have actually been observed since 1988, and information on illness and death has been collected for a further 53 GHR-deficient relatives, as well as 1,606 relatives of the cohort that didn't have the GHR deficiency, so they were normal height. This allowed the researchers to look at causes of illness and death in both of these populations to see if there were any significant differences. Cancer accounted for 17% of all diseases and 20% of all deaths in the unaffected relatives. But it was actually not recorded as a cause of death for anybody in the GHR-deficient population. Likewise, there were no reported cases of diabetes in the affected population and blood tests revealed significantly lower levels of insulin. Now, this tells us that there's something about this mutation that increases insulin sensitivity. However, there was no evidence of an extended lifespan for the affected population, and this might be due to the high proportion of deaths caused by non-age-related diseases, like convulsive disorders or things like alcohol toxicity and accidents. So to try and explain what might be going on, the researchers took human cells and incubated them with serum from either the GHR-deficient subjects or from their non-affected relatives, and then exposed these cells to a highly oxidising solution of hydrogen peroxide. Now, while individual cells incubated with the GHR-deficient serum showed less DNA damage there was also a higher level of apoptosis or programmed cell death amongst the population of cells. Now, this suggests that the cells are more likely to self-destruct rather than accumulate DNA damage. The authors suggest that their results provide a foundation for further investigation into the role of drugs blocking the GHR to prevent or reduce the incidence of cancer, diabetes and other age-related diseases. So a very, very interesting study. Very fascinating. So the, were they living on average about the same lifetime, the two groups? Yes, there was no difference in average lifespan, but the causes of death and the causes of illness throughout death were very different. It's fascinating. Now, the first image of the Earth's magnetic tail ever has been taken. 
Now, the northern lights have been in the news this week. They're caused by the solar wind, which is made up of energetic charged particles thrown off the sun, being trapped by the Earth's magnetic field, crashing into the atmosphere, exciting the air molecules there, making it glow. Other less beautiful side effects can include damaging satellites and even cutting off power grids. Unfortunately for those trying to understand the solar wind, uh, is that the solar wind is affected in electric current. Electric current through the magnetic field, altering where the wind's going to go, which changes the magnetic field again, and the whole thing goes round and round and round, and it becomes a complete computational disaster. And to make it even more difficult, the charged particles in space are essentially invisible, and the effect they have on the magnetic field is only measurable by actually putting the instrument in the magnetic field. So, because there's a limit, practical limit, to the number of satellites you can use at once, there's a limit to how much detail you can get of the Earth's magnetic field and the solar wind's interactions with it. Now, the Interstellar Boundary Explorer, or IBEX satellite, was actually designed to look at the heliopause, which is where the sun's magnetic field and solar wind becomes overwhelmed by the galactic magnetic field. At this junction, sometimes a charged nucleus will pick up electrons, becoming a neutral atom. And they, because these are unaffected by uh, magnetic fields, they'll just continue in a straight line, unaffected by anything other than gravity. Um, some of these hit the IBEX satellite and it can work out what direction they came from. So it can build up a picture of where these neutral atoms are coming from and can build up a picture of the heliopause, this edge of the magnetic field. But sometimes on the IBEX's um, orbit, it can have a look at the, the Earth instead of at looking outwards. So the heliopause is the sort of sphere of influence of the sun. But what IBEX can also occasionally look at is the sphere of influence of the Earth. That's exactly right. Um, they've managed to take a very low resolution image of the magnetic tail or plasma sheet that streams out behind the Earth in a kind of hole behind the Earth where the solar wind is kind of blocked by the Earth. David McCormass, who's a principal investigator on the mission, has published two images of this tail and they show it's a very dynamic place, um, with one image showing it as a nice sort of smooth tail and the other one showing a big lump of plasma being sort of pinched off and flying out. Um, and this is happening much closer to the Earth than current theories were expecting. Now, understanding these processes is becoming more and more important as the Sun is moving into a more active part of its 11-year solar cycle. And it's an interesting example of an instrument designed to investigate something very abstract being used much closer at home. It is interesting how much is going on in what looks to us to be empty space. There's so much activity going on that without missions like this and without these sorts of instruments, we'd never know about. You know, people have got an idea of it, but you can't get the whole picture without getting some kind of image. Thank you, Dave. Now, when somebody loses a limb, although it's possible to replace the missing part with a prosthesis, making it move is another matter entirely. But a technique being pioneered at the University of Chicago could change that. Todd Kuyken has been experimenting with targeted muscle re-innovation surgery. And what he does is to take the nerves that used to supply the severed body part and reroute them into a piece of muscle further up the limb. Now, when the patient thinks about moving the missing body part, the rewired muscle will change its activity instead. And by using electrodes to eavesdrop on that activity, it can be used to control the motors of a prosthetic arm. Chris Smith met with Todd Kuyken and his patient, Sergeant Glenn Lehman, who's actually undergone this procedure. He met them at the AAAS conference in Washington, D.C. Our big challenge is how to control an artificial limb. You lose your arm, and we can make robotic limbs, but how do you tell it what to do? So we've developed a technique that we call targeted muscle reinnervation, where we've developed a neural interface to capture what the person wants to do with their limb. Essentially, the way it works is we take the major nerves that used to go to the amputated arm, and they're still functional. They send motor commands, and if you stimulate them, you'll feel the missing arm. 
So we take those nerves and we transfer them to some spare muscles in the residual limb. Those nerves will then grow into those muscles, and when they, with Glenn, for example, thinks close his hand, now his medial biceps contracts. And we can detect a signal from that muscle contraction and tell his artificial hand to close. And this way we can get much more function, and it's intuitive. He thinks close his hand, his hand closes. Glenn, can you give us a demonstration? Oh, I can. So, first of all, talk us through what actually happened to you and how long you've been using the prosthesis you've got. November 1st, 2008, I lost my arm. Uh, I was on a combat patrol in Iraq. Uh, they threw an RKG-3 hand grenade at my truck. It penetrated the armor and separated or amputated my arm. After that, I was evacuated and uh, sent through Walter Reed, where I received treatment. Um, Dr. Batchelor and Dr. Kuyken uh, came to me and asked me if I would be a candidate for the uh, targeted muscle reinnervation surgery. And then uh, just this last week, I received this arm or went out to uh, RIC in Chicago and trained with them with this arm. Can you show us what it can do? I can raise and lower the elbow. I can rotate the hand so it's in or out. I can open and close the hand, and I can flex the wrist either in or out. And those movements are all controlled by me thinking about my phantom limb. So you're thinking about moving fingers that you no longer have but are present on the prosthesis, obviously, and those thoughts are being translated into what the prosthesis does? Yes, that's correct. Is it easy to learn to do? Uh, I have only used this arm for two weeks, so it was very easy. And what sort of resolution of movements can you manage? If I gave you some peas to pick up, could you do that? I believe I could, yes. Uh, the larger the item, the easier it is to actually grasp. So, I mean, if you, uh, like a bottle of water or something like that is easier. Uh, it's very hard to pinch things off a table. If you didn't have this, what would you have instead? And what, in what way has this enriched your life? I would just have a conventional arm. I would be able to operate the elbow and the hand, but it wouldn't be simultaneous. Um, I would only be able to cycle through each thing by switching, um, co-contracting muscles. So it's like the comparison between a minivan and a sports car. It's different categories. Martin, you had to do some of the surgery to make this feasible. What's actually involved in implementing a prosthesis like this in terms of actually rerouting the nerves to muscles and so on? Well, the, the performance of the surgery is actually very simple. Uh, the anatomy is predictable, and the procedures of transferring the severed nerve to a, a healthy piece of muscle is it, quite simple. And how long does it take patients to actually begin to use and work one of these prostheses? Well, since we put the severed nerve so close to the new muscle, it only takes a couple months before we start getting some contraction of the muscle. It may take uh, six months or maybe even a year before it fully matures, and the connection between the brain and that newly innervated muscle is plateaued and is what it's going to be. And just coming back to you, Todd, in terms of actually how the, the process works, so there are actually physically electrodes which are listening to what the muscle is doing when Glenn thinks what he wants to do. That's correct. We have sets of little electrodes that are like antennas listening to his muscles. If he had had his injury 20 years ago compared with very, very recently, you got to him when it was a fresh injury, would that have made a difference to whether this could be done? It, it may have. That answer isn't really known. Um, we're comfortable doing the surgery for five or ten years after injury um, in a younger patient, but uh, what, there may be a limit someday that we'll find that, that we don't want to cross over. We know that the nerves are still viable for decades after the injury, but how good they are at regenerating is a question. 
And what about sensation? Because at the moment he obviously can see what he's doing, but he can't feel what he's doing. What about taking it into that domain next? We have been able to provide hand sensation for some of our amputees. What we do is cut the nerve to the skin over these nerve transfers, and then the hand sensation nerves will grow into this residual limb skin. So when you touch it, it feels like you're touching the missing hand. It's very exciting for us because it gives us the potential of putting sensors in the prosthesis to see when you touch something or how hard you're squeezing and feed that information back so that the patient feels that they're getting that touch or pressure on their missing hand. And if this prosthetic is like a sports car compared to the traditional minivan, then just imagine what it would be like when you can feel what your prosthetic is touching as well. That was Todd Kiken and Sergeant Glenn Lehman speaking to Chris Smith at the AAAS conference in Washington this week. Now, Alaskan black bears do not hibernate in the same way as other smaller mammals, and an understanding of how they achieve their winter's rest may actually help to improve medical care and open the door to deep space travel. Hibernation is a very useful behaviour in challenging environments. By slowing the metabolic rate, an animal is able to cut its energy costs dramatically and survive a harsh winter on bodily reserves alone. In general, metabolic rate slows by 50% for every 10 degrees Celsius drop in body temperature. Most of the hibernating animals studied so far have been things small mammals like hedgehogs. Larger animals like bears have been a lot harder to study due to the technical limitations, but now researchers at the University of Alaska Fairbanks, along with colleagues from Stanford University, have had a unique chance to study five Alaskan bears captured by the Alaska Department of Fish and Game as nuisance animals. Oyvind Toyan and colleagues allowed the bears to hibernate in artificial dens, which were kitted out with infrared cameras, activity detectors and other remote sensing devices, and they monitored them throughout five months of hibernation. They measured oxygen concentration in the air as a marker of metabolic rate, and they surgically implanted radio transmitters inside the bears to report on body temperature and heart activity. Now, this allowed them to see that black bears actually reduced their metabolic rate to just 25% of its normal level, despite actually staying quite warm, around 33 degrees on average. Their heart rates dropped from around 55 to just 14 beats per minute, but they showed marked sinus arrhythmia, variation in frequency relative to breathing. This suggests that the bears have a mechanism in place to divorce metabolic rate from body temperature, allowing them to spend very long periods without eating, without drinking, without defecating, but without the need to be cold. On leaving hibernation in spring, the bears did not instantly return to their high metabolic rate as you might expect. It actually developed over the next two to three weeks of activity. Now also, unlike us humans who lose muscle and bone during a period of activity, bears do not seem to suffer any muscle or bone density loss. So as well as improving our understanding of how large animals like bears cope with harsh conditions, this could help us to develop some novel medical interventions. Brian Barnes, the senior author of the study, said, If we could discover the genetic and molecular basis for this protection, there is the possibility that we could derive new therapies and medicines to use on humans to prevent osteoporosis, prevent atrophy of muscle, or even to place injured people in a type of suspended or reduced animation until they can be delivered to advanced medical care. It may sound like science fiction, of course, but suspended or reduced animation is also exactly what we're going to need to send humans on 
very long missions to try and get outside of our solar system. Interesting, yes. And I've got a story here which is rather less deep. A mystery of moving stones on a perfectly flat, dry lake bed in the upper end of Death Valley. There are some strange rocks that is sailing stones which are dotted around an otherwise smooth lake bed. Some of them weigh up to 36 kilograms, but behind them are tracks, sometimes tens of metres long, as if they'd been moving. These tracks can be straight or zigzagged, and some of the stones have been marked, and their positions seem to are definitely moving, so it's not some strange kind of wind effect. But no one has ever seen one of these stones move. The movements seem to occur on the rare occasions when the lake is covered with a shallow layer of water, and there's a strong wind, and the temperature is very low. Um, both icebergs and high winds have been suggested as ways of moving the stones, but ne- never of them have really kind of seem decisive and actually to explain what's going on. Now, Ralph Lorenz, a scientist at John Hopkins University, has come up with a new explanation, a neat combination of both. The lake occasionally floods a couple of inches deep, and as it does so, a small iceberg forms around the stone. And as the water level increases slightly, because ice floats, this gives the stone some lift, reducing the friction with the ground. This allows winds to be able to push the stones along gently, forming the long tracks. They've done some experiments which support their hypothesis, although it'll be very hard to know if this is exactly what's happening until someone actually sees one of these things moving. But they only happen sort of once or twice a year, and it's a really unpleasant place to hang out and watch. But basically, mystery solved. We, we hope so. It seems to make sense. But again, we need the evidence. Um, their excuse for doing this, I think is probably the right <laughs> word, is that studying areas like the racetrack player have um, been useful in understanding places like shallow lakes on Saturn's moon Titan, where there are some hydrocarbon lakes rather than water lakes, which occasionally seem to dry out and should have very similar behaviours. Well, thank you very much, Dave. And if you would like to read up on anything that we've covered so far this week, the references and transcripts for each of the news stories we've discussed are online at thenakedscientists.com slash news. The Naked Scientists News Flash, reacting to the world's best science. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com.